0: My name is Anton Klenholt. I work for Old Mutual. I run a a small little team called Strategic Partnerships and Alliances. And a large part of our mandate is to work with partners like Startup Bootcamp to try and drive innovation a lot more actively for Old Mutual. Um, I'll introduce the guys, or actually leave Zach and Philip to introduce um, the panel. And I'll introduce them after a couple of thoughts for me. So I get a lot of questions in Old Mutual saying, why the hell are we doing this? You know, we're spending all this money working with accelerator programs. Uh, is it really worth, is it really worth the money? And I have five thoughts around that. So the one reason we work with startup, uh, with accelerators is because we clearly see the disaggregation of the value chain in insurance. So 20 years ago, guys like Old Mutual or MMI or Liberty owned everything along the value chain from start to finish, from product design to product delivery. And that's slowly disaggregating in a world where we increasingly talk about ecosystems, and platform businesses. And that's necessary because for you to be competitive, you can't just be good or bloody good at one part of the value chain. You need to be good and bloody good at almost all parts of the value chain to have a really kick-ass customer experience. And working with a startup or an accelerator helps us plug those gaps or capabilities in delivering a kick-ass value chain along the way. The second one is we're seeing a lot of convergence in in industries. so. I can almost bet that within 10 to 15 years, the difference or the, the difference between the life insurance industry and the health insurance industry is gonna, you know, it's gonna converge, it's gonna collapse. Because the industry is moving more towards prevention rather than just paying, paying out a life claim. It's about longevity and wellness rather than just making sure that a, ca- a claim is paid out in like, in like two days. So I think that's quite important. And these guys can see where where industries start converging and I mean evidence shows that where industries start to converge, that's where the real innovation happens. Um insurance are big rigid monsters, eh? They like banks. You mustn't mess with them. Um you know they're they often and often companies say that, um, you know, don't touch us but don't touch us, we don't want to change and we're surprised at that, but we shouldn't be. You know, this monster is pumping out billions or tens of billions of rands of profits. Why do we want to mess with that? So if that is the case, then working with an external partner like guys like this to drive innovation is the, is the right approach. And the last two thoughts from my side is speed. I mean, you saw Jeremy Gardner's slide yesterday about, what, what was it, 19 days for Pornhub to get to one, to 1 billion users and Twitter, I think, two years. Things are changing faster and faster. Um, we see MNOs playing in, in the payments field, taking a lot of value away from banks. Uh, we're seeing Facebook, Google, and Amazon playing in fields, not just uh, within their core. Um, NASPERS owns 33% of Tencent. Tencent owns WhatsApp. WhatsApp is WeChat. How much work does NASPERS have to do to introduce WeChat into the SI market and really take away a large share of the market for, for banks in terms of the payments infrastructure? And then lastly, talent. So the reason we work with these guys is because we like their tech solutions, but it's not just that. It's about buying into the talent. These guys are passionate guys. They don't work eight-hour days. They work 12 to 14-hour days. They really want to make a difference, that, and they're at the forefront of technology. So uh, we buy, we like the tech, but we also like the brains. So I'm going to introduce the guys from Startup Bootcamp now. Um, the dude with the hair... Um, and the ponytail is, is Zach. Uh, so, I actually want to read this because I want to make sure I don't mess it up. Um, so, Zach, Zach, uh, Zach, like me, is an engineer. Uh, uh, he has a Master's Degree in Finance and Management from St- Stanford University and a Bachelor's Degree in Mechanical Engineering. Uh, he used to be in his previous life a Wall Street banker and he's been head of Africa Investments for, uh, Ustart, which is the largest network of private multifamily offices in Europe. So he brings a heck of a lot of international VC startup experience to the SA, to the SA market and to the continent. And Philip is, uh, and he's the chief investment officer, right? Philip's co-founder as well alongside Zach and CEO of of Startup Bootcamp, Uh, Philip brings more than 20 years of direct startup and venture financing experience, spanning a diverse range of industries on four continents. He is a veteran of the first dot-com boom and a partner in Horizon Ventures. He relocated to Cape Town in 2013, I think, and he is not a Trump supporter. (laughs) I'm not sure. Guys, so I'm going to hand you over to these guys. They're going to run the session for you. Um, I will close, so... Without further ado, uh, welcome, guys, and welcome to the panel. Good
1: afternoon, afternoon, everyone. Can I press this? Good afternoon. Can everyone hear me? Well, thanks for taking the time after lunch and, in Anton's word, the the graveyard slot, although the graveyard slot is usually 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, my name is Zach George. Um, Philip and I are the co-founders of started Bootcamp AfriTech. Uh, for those of you that aren't aware of who we are, we're the, the largest multi-corporate backed accelerator on the planet. Uh, and, uh, the top accelerator outside of the U.S. So what we essentially do is we, we work with incredible founders like the four of these folks right here that have amazing ideas. Um, that turn into minimal bubble products and we help scale them together with corporate partners that we work with across financial services banking insurance telcos retailers to help them get the right proof of concept pilots experiments that eventually lead to commercial traction and on on the back of that um the the investing community across angel investors family office and venture capital funds is a lot more de-risked so they get not just commercial traction but they they get significant interest from the investing community and eventually they create the future unicorns or half unicorns of the African continent so for the first time in several years we see the opportunity for passionate founders of African tech startups that have the opportunity to work with folks like yourself across corporate South Africa and corporate Africa um, to create the future disruptors and innovators. And Startup Bootcamp is one of the pioneers of that across the world. And we launched our first cohort,
2: um, two years ago in Cape Town. Um, Greetings. Um, so I think it's, it's actually really helpful to, to start with some context. You know, everyone talks about disruption and, and innovation. And, you know, I think at a, at a high level, you know, there's probably wide consensus among the group that, you know, hey, this is something we should probably pay attention to. Uh, you may already be dabbling into it. Um, but it's also, I think, really important to understand the gravitas of, of what we're, what we're facing. Um, and so, especially for a room full of people that deal with numbers and, you know, very detailed projections, uh, you might also find yourself shocked by where Kind of the, the the calamity that we're that we're facing uh, globally, but specifically here uh, in Africa. So I, I want to start with just a really quick uh, stat for you, and and then we're going to do a poll, kind of a, a wisdom, crowd of the wisdom, you know, wisdom of the crowds type of, of uh, query. So current population of of the globe is about 7.2 billion people uh we're going the projections UN projections say that by the end of this century we're going to get to about 11.2 billion so that that's 4 billion net new people coming uh so if you first question this is the this is the easy after lunch question um if you had to say by by numbers how many people think or what what continent do you think is the is the largest contributor to that 4 billion of net new people africa right okay so that's the easy one Now we're going to do a little bit of a show of hands. So if you think that uh, Africa contributes more than 50% of the net new growth over the next 80 years, put your hand up. Okay, if you think it contributes more than, no, keep your hands up. If you think that it's more than 60%, leave your hand up, otherwise put your hand down. Okay, if you think it's more than 70%, keep your hand up and put your hand down if it's less than 70%. If you think it's more than 80%, keep your hand up. If you think it's more than 90%, keep your hand up. Okay, there's one hand left. So it's actually about 90% of the net new growth in the next 80 years of of the planet is going to be here in Africa. Okay, so here's a room full of Africans, a room full of Actuarians. Um, just let that, let that kind of sink in for a moment and think about 3.5 billion more people coming to this continent. And what's even more staggering than that is that the vast majority of that growth is happening in urban areas. So most of the cities in Africa are going to see population growth of four to eight times their current size. So, how many people commuted today (laughs) to this conference? Right? Think about four times more people on the road. Okay? Think about eight times more people living in our cities. And you start to kind of grasp that nowhere in the world, in history, have we ever dealt with a growth rate that's that extraordinary or extreme. So it's a completely unprecedented population surge that we're going to be facing. And 80 years is obviously, you know, it's it's in the lifetime of our kids or grandkids for sure. Um, And there's simply no precedent, there's no book, there's no roadmap, there's no um, template that we can look at that gives us any clues as to how to deal with that. So when we start talking about disruption and innovation, we're not just talking about cool new drones or, you know, fintech solutions and sure tech. It's literally every aspect of life is going to be profoundly impacted by this. And the solutions to those kinds of challenges are are actually unimaginable based on what we know today. So when you when you look at solutions that are unimaginable with your current frame of reference, that is the textbook definition of disruption. And so Africa is literally ground zero for disruption. Because here, disruption is not a cool press release, it's not a big fancy uh, release party, it's not something that gets shown off at CES, the conferences, this, you know, here disruption is an existential reality. It's a necessity. So by the end of this century, 12 of the 20 largest cities on the on the planet are going to be african cities including the three largest cities in the world. So a third of the entire population of earth will be african by the end of the century. So these are the simp- these are just demographic numbers. And when we look at how we're going to get there the solutions are not going to come from silicon valley they're not going to come from the west. They're going to come from the people that are living, breathing, eating, sleeping, just, you know, these challenges every single day. So the innovative future, the disruptive future of the planet is right here in Africa. And we believe that South Africa and Cape Town in particular are going to be, you know, ha- strong contenders for kind of the the, the epicenter of that. Um, so Startup Bootcamp is a pan-African program. We recruit startups, the best startups from all over the continent, to come here for a three-month program. Um, but they can't do that alone. The best ideas in the world that you're gonna hear aren't going to reach scale without the support of corporations that are out into the market. So, in the same way that we are facing an existential reality for disruption, we are similarly facing an absolute necessity for corporate startup collaboration. And that is what we're here to do, is to support that. Uh, We have some very amazing corporate partners that, that do that, but we are a open, uh, innovation ecosystem. So there is no exclusivity in the Startup Bootcamp environment. We are looking to engage with all of the kind of corporate partners um, that are in the room here today and beyond. Um, and and that's really what we want to showcase is some of the great work that's already being done. Um, but we're also really excited to look at, you know, and we're really impart upon everyone uh, an urgency around getting involved in this so that when we look at the future, this very massive looming cliff that we're we're screaming towards, um, that we're taking the steps today um, to find amazing bridges that are going to get us past that. So without further ado, I want to introduce some of the amazing startups. Because truthfully, like whereas we go out and we scout them and we help support them, um, the most inspiring part of, of our job, that, that Zach and I are, are blessed to get to travel the continent and find uh, men and women like these who are slogging away every single day. To come up with brilliant ideas um, and 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 to bring those to to fruition.
1: Okay, so without further ado, if we could ask um, Abdulaziz from Empost to talk for the next three to four minutes about what they do, um, and that'll be followed in order by the next three founders. So, so M-Post is from Kenya. They are part of our current 2018 cohort. Alex from Digitech is from Cote d'Ivoire. They're part of our current cohort. And Nikki from Spoon Money and Chantel were part of our 2017 cohort.
3: Thank you, Zach. Uh, am I audible enough? No, I don't think it's switched on. Hello? Hello? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Perfect. <laughs> thank you, Zach. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, as Zach introduced me, my name is Abdulaziz Mohammed from M Post. Uh, post basically stands for the Mobile Post Office. And while I was just sitting down there and listening to Philip, you know, kind of elaborate to you what this, you know, uh, population expansion means, I could actually see a lot of faces, you know, with different kind of feelings and like, okay, what's happening here? But the good news is that it's not all uh, doomed. Uh, the good news is that that is a market opportunity, especially for, you know, innovators like ourselves. Uh, What is interesting to basically kind of, you know, uh, bring up the numbers uh, is that we're actually experiencing that catastrophic event, if you want to call it that way. Because where I come from in Kenya, we've had the postal corporation operate for almost 127 years in a population of 46.7 million Kenyans. But in those 127 years, they only had the capacity and ability to provide only 400,000 official addresses until the emergence of m What we have done in our 24 months of existence is we have managed to provide official virtual postal addresses through the conversion of your mobile number to become your official postal address, and we've managed to have over 40,000 people on our platform just by word of mouth alone. Relate that to your industry in terms of the insurance sector, People have to come to you to seek for services. You have to give them application forms. And in those forms, four critical questions have to be asked. My name, my, penal pa- my ID or passport number, my physical address, and most importantly, my postal address. Of course, for the longest time, I've always been using somebody's postal address. And you guys had had no way to actually know whether that is true or not. That is a potential threat for fraud. But M-Post is here to solve that, and we're solving it, uh, of course, with the help of SBC and everybody who's actually supporting us. So that is what we do at Empost, and uh, we've we've tried to do it. Uh, we are rather doing it for the for the uh, for the last two years, and I'm pleased to actually uh, tell this platform that uh, hopefully soon enough we should be working with one partner, actually a very big partner from you know this room, to actually make it uh, happen. Thank you. You're welcome to spend more time talking about how it actually works. We've got. Yeah, yeah, like, sure. I mean,
1: how the technology works, if you've got...
3: Yeah, I'm I not trying to get all the time to be boring, so i will rather leave you know, the curious questions later after. after, after. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you insist. <laughs> so it, it, is, it is quite simple. Um, what we do is basically uh, enable you as a user to basically use a USSD dialing code uh, or uh, an app or the website, and within a thirty-second process, you should be able to get yourself an official postal address, and you're actually able to make your payments, you know, via mobile money. Okay.
1: We'll 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 unpack that in more detail in the Q and A. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you.
4: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is uh, Alexandre. Um, I originally come from Côte d'Ivoire, and I'm part of the Startup Bootcamp AfriTech program this year. So global insurance penetration is a challenge. I guess that all of you know that. In my home country, barely 2% of the population is covered by an insurance product, by an insurance policy. But at the same time, in the same country, uh, we record a 100% mobile phone ownership, and those little devices facilitate over 40 million USD worth of transactions every day in the same country. 98% of the population doesn't have access to insurance. A minor injury or routine illness can have catastrophic consequences on the future. The beauty of West Africa is if you take Cote d'Ivoire and you add to it another 14 countries, you form CIMA, which is a single unified insurance market from a regulation point of view. With just one license, you access instantly 137 million people who are currently uninsured. In Cote d'Ivoire, Mariam was been recruited as one of our customers during a two-weeks pre-launch effort is one of those people. She is trading every day at the largest open market in Abidjan. She is struggling to get access to a formal insurance product because it's too costly and it's just not accessible. She is part of a traditional saving groups in the aim to protect herself against unforeseen events. But, unfortunately, this solution has proven to be very unreliable. For the very first time now, thanks to Digitech, she's accessing an affordable, tailored insurance product, which is accessible 24-7, straight through her phone. Just by three simple steps, using a national ID, and navigating through a USSD short code. She can now activate that medical cover at a cost below ten dollars, something which has which would have costed below like above forty dollars in the normal circumstances. Behind that seamless customer experience, Digitech has built a white label, robust cloud-based insurtech platform for any insurance company which aims to reach and tap into this massive market of mobile phone users. If you're an insurance executive sitting in this room, I can imagine, I think you'll be pleased to understand the peace of mind that we can create on our platform by executing five key jobs for you. Know your customer, customer onboarding, premium collection, electronic policy documentation, and the so-consuming task of claims management. Actually, according to the German Development Agency, it actually cost five times less to distribute a micro insurance product through the phone. Our largest partner, Saham, a company which spans more than 20 countries in Africa, I signed a long-term commercial agreement with Digitech. This is something we're very prone to announce. By leveraging our platform, visionary companies such as Saham will be able not only to access customers regardless of the phone they use, customers just like Miriam, but also more advanced users through smartphones and in the near future through social media such as Facebook. None of this would have been even possible. Without the team driving Digitech, I'm proud to lead. Together, our funding team brings a combined and unique blend of 45 years of experience in reinsurance, insurance, telecom, and technology. Digitech is surely on track to become the largest distributed insurtech platform in the SEMA region by serving the entire value chain, not only the insurance companies, but also the reinsurers and the brokers. I can imagine that if you want to reach out to those 137 million people in the CIMA region alone, Digitech is now ready to meet you. Thank you.
0: We present, we will do a large Q&A towards the end, just because of the need for
5: roving Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Yes. My name is Nikki Swartz. I'm with Spoon Money. Um, and Spoon is a social enterprise and with a mission to address the needs of really low income earners. By that, I'm talking about people who earn less than 5,000 rand a month and their aim really is to move people from a state of financial hardship to being financially stable and financially healthy. Not rich, because that's going to be a long time coming, but certainly stable. Uh, we've been trading since January, and we launched with a group lending product. We effectively work with stockfells. That's right, that deeply unregulated informal sector, that's probably about 60% of our economy somewhere, and I'm sure sends shivers down the spine of every actor in the room. Um, We, having launched with a microcredit product, we plan to pilot savings um, from January 2019. In the immediate term, this credit product solves the problem of very limited and very expensive capital within within the township environment, And, um, and this is really for people who have no access to formal credit. As we head towards delivering digital credit, the theory goes that this is going to increase access to digital finance in order to make people and households more resilient, create jobs, and ultimately build thriving micro-businesses, and we do believe that this outcome is possible. Our client base is 99% female. Um, We're talking here really in terms of the stock group's domestic workers who own less than 5,000 rand a month. These stock act as hidden banks within the township environment, and they grow the group's contributions by lending out to other members of the community. In this context, Spoon Money acts as a reserve bank. We provide additional capital, and they effectively, which adds to their pool, and they effectively make a turn on our money. And in this way, we help them Grow their, grow their contributions and the ultimate payout for their members. Another segment we've recently tapped into are micro-entrepreneurs. These are also people who work through stock Less saving, they work through the hoi hoi mechanism, which is a rotating scheme. But they are also in groups, and here I'm talking about the women who stand outside of their house selling chips, fruit, veggies, Ryan, that level of informal, informal um, micro-enterprise. I think of it as subsistence entrepreneurship. Um, and what we are doing is providing these groups with capital in order to buy stock and in that way build their businesses. And just as a matter of insight, all of these customers do talk about this as a business. We use this group lending mechanism, mimicking as closely as we can um, traditional and existing stockpile practices. So, we have a 30-day loan, which is the usual term for stockpiles. We uh, loan money to them at a total cost of credit of 10% a month for those 30 days. It's an unsecured loan, and we're leveraging social capital, which is that intangible bond between members of the stockpile that's A, (coughs) keeps them... Um, builds a level of trust, uh, builds a savings discipline, um, and really drives commitment to the group. And we're using that meca- mechanism in order to de-risk the model. The groups access Spoon through an agent network model. We, I must confess, this business started as a, complete, a real FinTech.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and
5: that was with real tech. And quickly discovered that, in fact, our groups just were not going there. They have, for over 100 years, used a book, And it turns out the book works just fine. So in fact, what we have done is standardized the book. And what we have because I would, in fact, challenge any of you, the brightest minds in the country, to be able to decipher those ledgers because it was certainly beyond us. So we effectively have standardized the ledger so that we can make sense of it. And in fact, our groups are very happy to do it. Um, And we effectively digitize it to the back end, capturing information like member contributions, the loan they take from the stock file, the repayment, and even fines. All of this information um, is showing us that we have a segment who are desperate to be visible, although currently invisible to the formal sector, and are in fact proving themselves creditworthy. The challenge here is that they have a really low digital footprint and art, or in your world, thin files. So, if I haven't asked today, it's for anyone here who might be planning a sabbatical <laughs> to take some time out and join Spoon Money, because we really are struggling to develop an alternative credit scoring model that works in this environment. We have a dedicated savers, a diligent savers, you know, having, at, I'm planning nine months now, And having issued over um, close to 600 loans, we have less than 1% default rate, um, which we think is just incredible and is proving that there is something to this model. But we are planning to scale quite rapidly. And for that, we do need an alternative credit scoring model, which really looks at alternative data in this environment. So I really would um, urge anyone out there looking for an interesting sideline to um, please come and chat to me after. Thank you.
6: Glad yeah, Philip wasn't standing here before me, <laughs> like this. Can everybody hear me? Okay, I, I'm Shantal from Virtual Drive. Um, Virtual Drive was founded by myself about two years ago. Um, I was a group finance and insurance manager for Porsche Inter, and um, being a finance and insurance manager, what we are incentivized to do is sell finance and insurance in the motor industry. So I'm not sure if you can maybe give me an indication of how many of you own a vehicle in South Africa <laughs> and how many of those vehicles are insured. Okay, So you can understand the big need for it. So in South Africa, about 1.1 million pre-owned cars are sold every year. So that's quite a significant number, but 85% of those vehicles are sold through a dealer. And there's only one simple reason for that, and that is because of security. There's no way of really knowing what the kind of asset that it is that you're buying, and also not the kind of payments and insurance and finance that you can do. So that's why the, the dealership model has worked until now. So what we've done is we've built a platform where you can actually sell your car privately. But there's a different angle to this, and that's something that's very difficult to explain to a consumer, but something that will maybe be a bit easier for you to understand. If you are a non-dealer affiliated insurance company, you have a 40% chance of churning your customer on a dealership floor. Your insurance company is your last point of contact. Normally, the the, the broker or the um, insurer is phoned maybe half an hour to an hour before the delivery of the vehicle. Now, that's way too late. If it's on a Friday, which most of the vehicle deliveries happen on, you probably have lost your customer already. So what we do is we communicate and work with our insurance partners to communicate with our customers nine months before the customer is actually going into the selling or buying market. Why do we do that? Because we work on market value instead of trade and retail. So we help you to be able to sell your cars as close as possible to market value. We built a sales infrastructure that basically works in the same way as Uber. The same problem that we have with dealerships, dealerships are closing about... Two to three dealerships at Johannesburg are closing daily at the moment. And that's simply because of the unsustainable pricing model. We've changed that completely and we're offering you now the ability to bring the pricing in. How we do that is we give you a dedicated sales facilitator who has between five to ten years of experience in the industry and vehicle experience. We put every single vehicle through a DECRO condition report. And because he doesn't need to make a 30 or 40% markup on your vehicle to be able to sustain the dealership's overheads, he literally has zero overheads, almost zero overheads, because Virtual Drive carries those overheads for him. He runs as an Uber sales facilitator who drives your private private sale for you. So, in essence, that's Virtual Drive. That makes sense.
0: So... Everybody's done their pitches. Um, We have have probably about, what, 20, 25 minutes left. So I'd like to make this pretty interactive. So any questions you have uh, to either the Startup Bootcamp guys or any of the guys, uh, um, the finalists, uh, stick up your hands. Well, I mean, we can do it by startup as well.
2: So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, I think, so i the, are the, going to pass around the roving mics, so if you have a question, um, you can direct it to, you know, one of the individual startups, or you can also just ask a, a general question, and we will, will juggle accordingly. We
1: might need more than one roving mic there, are like 1, people this room.
7: Hi. Uh, so I just want to start off with some clarification questions. Uh, uh, so what was your, pro- your this is virtual drive. Um, I didn't quite understand the product. Who's your customer? Is it individuals who are trying to sell their car or replacing their car? Uh, so uh, the um, Chantel? Yeah. yeah. Just press that
1: button there. Yeah. Can you hear me? Just, just not continue. Continue. Won't go any Okay. Oh, well. Let's actually move on a little bit.
6: Can you hear me now? better barely. Uh, okay. Um, so we actually have three value propositions. So our value proposition to the insurance company is quite simple. Um, so we estimate when your customer will be going into a buying or selling cycle. Um, well, How we do this is instead of using... Um, Last minute reactive marketing campaigns. So, we actually use a proactive approach to um, estimate when life changes happen because mostly life changes or life events trigger a vehicle purchase. So, we help you to analyze your data. In, in, in other words, if you know that a person is moving in from um career start into your career build phase, normally there's a vehicle attached to that in um, a specific type of vehicle. The same when you go into um, your career build, your career peak, when you start having children, when you start ha- moving, um, your kids are moving to, um, into varsity, and also when you're moving okay. into retirement phase. So those are the kind of life phases that we work with you to be able to estimate proactively when your customer will be going into that buying phase. So that's the insurance value proposition. So,
7: so what does the insurer get out of that? So I'm an insurer now and I know that my client is going to buy a car in six months, likely. What am I doing with that?
6: You literally just help us with the data. That's all we need. Because we need the opt-in from the customer, obviously in terms of public compliance, and then we will be able to preempt that. And as a partner to the insurer, we help them to, first of all, retain their client. So in other words, the customer retains the, they retain the client to reinsure. The second is then to retain the asset, because you also don't want the asset to be sold and migrating to another insurer. You want to retain that asset as well. And the third element You're is being the car. Say again? The the vehicle. being the car. Sorry, I'm being
7: very stupid about this, but I'm I'm just trying to get what actually happens.
6: It is a complicated – you know why it is so complicated? Because it's something that we're not actually educated about at all as a consumer. That's why we had to kind of separate the private sale element from the insurer element. So the insurer element is something that we can quite easily speak to. But when you're talking to a customer, to a consumer out there, literally you are – it kind of just goes above their head when they're talking about insurance, exactly. Because it's like, well, my car's insured. I don't really care. You know, when I'm ready to sell it, I'll sell it. But the problem is this. If you go to a dealership, you'll be offered trade or trade below. And you will be sold insurance at the the dealership and you will be sold finance on the the dealership floor. Mm -hmm. And those insurance companies are dealer-affiliated with the specific insurer on that floor. So if you are an insurer... You're churning your customer. In fact, if you're doing a replacement of a of a of a total loss, you send your customer to your, your your competition with money in their hands. Okay. Okay. So what we do is we help you in your China. In in it's a China wall data. So in other words, you, we will be able to say to you, this client will be lo- looking looking at selling his vehicle probably in the next two, three months, okay, we start communicating with that client to say that this is the amount of value that you will be able to save if you sell the vehicle now, not when you get to 100,000 kilometers, but rather at 65,000 kilometers. So it's a value added as a service to, as an insurer that you're now adding to your customer. When that customer then decides to sell it, what we how we've built it on the system, Look, obviously I mean, there's not really a way to show it to you now, but what we've done is we're going to put it in as a... Um, the gear, so the car remains in park while you're just insured and very happy with your vehicle. But if you before that st- decide to sell your vehicle, you just put it into drive and then we sell it for you. So either we sell it to someone from our external panel, so we list the vehicles on Gumtree, we list the vehicles on Auto Trader, okay. we find an external customer for you to be able to migrate into your pool, and that with the guarantee that you will have your client retain and the asset retain.
7: Okay, so if, I'm a, if, if my insurer is working with you, at some point I should get an email or letter saying, hi, Joe, looks like you might be looking, thinking about selling your car. If you do, this is what, um, what we, the service that we provide if you want to use it. That's the sort of thing.
6: Very much. and You don't really do have to do anything other than sending us five pictures of the vehicle because we can migrate all the data that you have from your last confirmation okay. of cover into our, into our system so that we have the vehicle data on the system already.
7: Thank you. That, that's that. I understand that now. And before I hand over the mic, how what what are virtual addresses and how do you generate them?
3: <laughs> oh, perfect. Cool. So, virtual addresses, virtual portal addresses, are basically official, legal portal addresses that enable you know any anybody to actually show or approve of their identity. So in simple terms, how you basically access uh, the virtual portal address, and, and this is uh, in regard to experience we have, is uh, we use the USSD uh, mode of application, or if you have a smartphone, then you can actually use an app, or basically uh, acquire the address via web. Um, so essentially, when you get an address, and if, let's say, uh, an insurance company is going to send you a mail, then you are... You will get a notification message on your phone that you have mail, so that kind of saves you the trip as a client to always keep on guess checking in your postal box, whether you have a mail or not okay uh, What is interesting is right now with the growth of e-commerce and of course with a lot of uh, uh, you know activities from farms like insurance companies and so on and so forth, people or clients want the conveniency of actually being brought you know, their policy documents and so on and so forth to an exact position of where they are. Traditionally, the norm has been you either have to drop drop it at my registered office or my registered house. But with M-Post, we are actually able to drop it at a place of your convenience.
2: And Aziz, I think it's actually useful to talk about the Kenyan government case with eCitizen and where they're going with that.
3: Yes. Uh, If I can just expound on what Philip uh, is basically saying. So originally as I stated, we have a ballooning population in Kenya. Uh, of course identity, KYC is a critical aspect of any transaction. Uh, a lot of people don't have addresses because the capacity of the government is only you know, 400,000. So what the government has done is it's taken up our solution and it's basically uh, onboarded it on the e citizen platform. Which is more or less like the digital, uh, you know, uh, government, uh, uh, onboarding platform. And they're actually asking people to get themselves M-post addresses as a means of basically the government identifying them. This essentially helps the government to actually, you know, uh, give, it, uh, deliver, or give and deliver services to them.
1: Let I mean, I'll just quickly add something if, 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 if your question wasn't completely answered. The way the technology works is your, your cell phone number, is recorded by M-Pesa or Airtel Money or any mobile operator networks in Kenya, your cell phone number together with the combination of your closest zip code serves as your postal address. So, hypothetically, in South Africa, your number would be 079-372-8636-8001, Cape Town, South Africa, and you could have your mail delivered to you. Because you're registered through all the mobile operators and the Postal Union of Kenya and other parts of Africa have you on the system, when mail comes to you, they log on to MPOST. They see that it's an MPOST address. They generate a QR code automatically. You get an SMS on your phone and a unique, um, security code. You then come to the office, pick it up. That QR code gets stamped on your actual parcel. You can either pick it up in person or have it delivered to you. So essentially now, 45 million people in Kenya are now in the formal commerce sector. They can pick up mail, bank cards, insurance policies, stuff on, on Jumia, anything. So you're essentially commercializing the uncommercialized through a digital postal address, which is a massive problem. And that's essentially what we do. We, we, we look at technology, you know, technological solutions to real-world problems, and something as simple as a postal address actually has much bigger ramifications for large businesses.
8: Hi, my question's from Nikki. I um, just wanted to ask that 10% interest per month that you're charging there, um, what percentage of that goes back into the stock file? What percentage goes to your um, capital uh, investors? Uh, yeah, so what what is happening? So I, I worry that 10% is very high per month, and uh, this portion of the population is financially illiterate, and it feels a little like extortion, but
5: that might be a
8: big word. But yeah.
5: It's something we um, are incredibly sensitive to, actually. So the 10% is the total cost of credit. We work within NCA regulations. So um, an initial loan will be charged at 5% a month, which is what it is. And then if we have some administrative fees, which results in a total cost of credit of 10%. To give you a comparison, I applied for a loan with Capitech the other day, and the total cost of credit to me was going to be 22% for 30 days. Um, with Wonga, it was th- almost 28, close to 30%. Sorry, is
8: this um, per annum?
5: No, nope. nope, for a 30-day loan. So
8: it's not a converted rate?
5: It's, it's 30, 30, For a 30-day uh, loan, that would be the, the payback. So, ironically... Spoon money is one of the cheapest the cheapest credits in the country. <laughs> um, so also to give you a sense of the, within the space, the options for our customers are virtually non-existent from any formal sector. If they want a loan, their option is to either go to my other segments, who are the stock files that act as the micro banks, who charge a going rate of approximately 30% a month, which is arguably... Right on par with Wanga. <laughs> um, or they go to the so who's going to charge them 50%. So th- those are the options that my segment has. And so this is what we are able to provide as a service.
8: Um, and one percentage of that goes back to the stockpile?
5: So all, all of the money they make is theirs. So they charge, so they make it all the money. They, ch- they pay me 10% and they make 20. They, you know, they charge thirty. They pay me twenty. Oh, uh, I they, understand. Sorry, they that's pay me ten. Mending. They make twenty.
8: Okay, yeah. so the actual interest rate is around about thirty percent, and you guys are getting the ten percent. Twenty percent is going
5: back into the stockpile. Okay. Absolutely. No, sure. I think, so thirty
8: percent is actually the, massive, though.
5: It is scary, but it's that's the going rate. It gives you a sense of the how limited and expensive capital is in that environment. Thanks.
2: I think the, the really fascinating part about this whole process is is how we have. Uh, yeah we're unable to understand what our customers really want um and we see this across the board and so the whole methodology that we propose you know that we work with both for corporates and with startups is is full on customer discovery and customer validation So we work with going out into the field and understanding what are their pain points and not what we perceive the pain points to be. So, you know, we have a, a a bias, you know, as that question illustrated, like, oh my gosh, 10%, that's a really expensive, that's almost usurious, you know, we're, we're extorting people, we're taking advantage of them, and and that's a bias. Um, and, you know, and I, myself, when Nikki first, when we first met her, you know, held a similar bias. Um, and even when she went out initially to go out into the community, like her solution initially was very much like, hey, you guys are doing loans, we're just gonna help you digitize that process. What she actually discovered was the real pain point was we can't get enough capital. We, we were very, very successful at returning significant returns, or generating significant returns, we just can't get enough. So tradition, prior to Spoon Money, it was pooled money among the community. So the, the individuals would come together. They all put in their 100 Rand, 200 Rand, and that's the, the asset base they had to work with. So they can generate 30% returns, but off a base of, you know, a thousand Rand in that month. Um, they were begging her to, to generate more capital for them. So that was, that was one of the big pivots that she came through in the program was, whoa, actually, I thought that the customer need was this when it's actually this over here. And so when I can, provide them a real solution to their pain point, which is they just need more capital, and I can go out and do what, you know, 500 plus loans with 130 something different lending groups with less than a 1% default rate. It's very clear that the preconceived notion about credit worthiness, um, respons- you know, responsible lending behavior, um, all of that really goes away. Uh, and that's really what this program does for both startups and corporates, is it helps get to the real consumer needs and the customer needs, um, and how we can best solve their pain points.
8: Sorry, I think it, uh, the, the 10%, well, actually, 30% now is more in line with the 1% default rate. If you're getting that lower default rate, then surely you can charge less interest, like, just by two cents, Thanks. or 10%, two cents, whatever. Mm-hmm.
9: <laughs> Hi. Alex, sorry. Sorry, Anton, yeah. um, A question for Alex and then uh, unfortunately another comment for Nikki. Um, Alex, my my question is I don't think anyone in the room underestimates the benefit of, of digitization and, and the advantage of going and, and offering insurance to customers directly through, through digital means. Um, but I think the biggest challenge that we all face, and I'd love to hear how you've hopefully conquered it, is how do you get customers into your electronic marketplace? Um, how, how do people come to you uh, now that you, you've built the platform for them? And then my question for Nikki is when people panic about interest rates is because we annualize them. Um, but annualized interest rates are when people have debt for a year. To what extent do you know your your customers are, are rolling their, their interest rates? So I'm, I'm paying 30% this month, and then I take another loan at the end of the month, and, and then I have to pay 30%. And that's when you get to, like, 1,000% at the end of the year. If someone's taking a, a loan for a month, and that's it, and then they're clear, you, you can see, look, of that, a chunk is fees, and not that much is, is interest. We can live with that. But if it's people continually living in that cycle, is is when it becomes difficult to stomach.
4: Okay, uh, just to put things in context, um, in my in my country, uh, if I think about the fixed telephone industry, uh, which has been in, pre- in prison like for more than sixty years, uh, not more than two hundred thousand people have a fixed telephone. And even for some people in this room, they might not understand what I mean. It took just 15 years for the mobile phone industry to reach 100% penetration in Cote d'Ivoire. So basically what I'm trying to explain here that the phone has a very powerful transformative like power on people. So what Digitech is doing is just to leverage on this existing infrastructure, and the way the insurance companies are basically going to drag, if I can, ex- I can use this word, drag people toward the platform, is just by using the powerful device that people already have in their hands. Okay. So, for example, to be very specific, we are using several channels. We're using USSD, which is a very Old technology which just means that people don't need to have a very fancy smartphone a very basic ten dollar phone can do the job and I'm talking about seventy percent of the addressable base okay so massive communication through SMS okay through the network of the telco communication through radio something I've experienced myself in Tanzania a few years ago where we basically grew a product from zero customer to more than half a million customers in 18 months with actually very minimum advertising budget. It just shows that the demand is there, okay? And because people are using those devices, we're just going to leverage on them and do the ad around it to help them to subscribe and get the benefit of it. I'm not sure if that answers your question.
2: We need the mic. uh. Sorry.
9: Hearing that that you're using, call it more more traditional uh, advertising methods, sending out SMSs, tapping people up on on the radio, um, answers my question. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think also just to add to that though, you know, it's very important that he's not, he is a platform. Right. So Digitech provides a platform. The insurance companies are his partners. So he's enabling them to do all of the key steps, but they're actually still doing the, the key marketing of the solution. Um, and so he doesn't take over that that function for them. Um, he's just handling all of the KYC, all the onboarding, and all of the other things. So it's it's a true partnership. It's a collaboration. It's it's kind of insurance as a as a as a service. And
5: perhaps my my comment in terms of the issue of over indebtedness is really this appears, and this is the observation to date. There's a great deal of self-regulation within the groups. Um, members know what the other members are doing. I mean, it's quite interesting. We do, I mean, we do as part of our application form a, an affordability assessment. And, you know, I will say, you know, well, Lisa, do you have any loans? You know, what, do you have a Woolworths card or a Fashini card? And someone else will go, No, absolutely not. So there's a great there's a really close understanding. They are close, and there's a lot of self regulation within the group in terms of how that money gets distributed amongst the members in order to prevent the level of indebtedness. So
0: if there aren't other questions, I thought we could conclude more questions. So I thought for the last five minutes, I wanted to make it really real. So clearly there's a lot of interest amongst a bunch of you in, in stuff like this. So having worked with these guys for a long time, I know that it's a pain in the ass to get your company to listen. So Zach, I want, I'd like us to conclude with a couple of things. So from your perspective, what are the big pains in working with large organizations, large insurers? And then Philip. <coughs> I'd like, you, I'd like us to conclude with your views around why guys in South Africa should rather partner with the local accelerator rather than the big guys um, in Silicon Valley. And that should take us to, to the end. You can handle that.
1: All right, cool. So thanks. A very good question. Um, so the, the history of corporates partnering with startups dates back to about almost 15 years ago in Silicon Valley um, and other parts of um, uh, the Americas and, and West Europe. The If you look at the idea of people trying to copy Silicon Valley and make it work in South Africa or other parts of Africa, it's actually a very flawed approach. And the reason for that is just one thing, access to market. So you can go from, if you're a B2C startup where you're selling directly to a consumer, you can go from 100 customers to like 100,000 customers in three months. And that's because the the market in the U.S., Is sophisticated, it's large, and it has a degree of virality to it. So you could spend a couple of million dollars on CRM, viral marketing, and you can get significant traction very quickly with the right marketing teams and sales teams. You can't do that in markets like Lagos, Nairobi, Accra, Joburg, Cape Town, or, or Mumbai. What you have to do is you have to understand how you can leverage off of existing distribution channels that large corporates have. And that's typically banks, insurance companies, retailers, and telcos. So most corporates in South Africa and Africa tend to work out of a position of fear. right? So if, if startup A is developing a peer-to-peer lending solution or a KYC solution that I don't understand, I either ignore it. I look at some CSI work with them, or I'll buy you if you're a threat. So South African corporates are arguably one of the most acquisitive corporate cultures on this planet. The problem with that mentality is if you buy a company before they have actually pivoted and have traction, you're killing innovation because you're converting entrepreneurs into employees. And I'm not going to go through a list of companies, but most of you, most of you in the room know of several large banks, insurance companies, and retailers that have killed innovation because of that. And South Africa, as a result, has had innovation that's predated innovations like Apple Pay or Mint. We've had those innovations in South Africa before that, but they've been killed by corporate acquisitions. So rather, what we focus on at Startup Bootcamp is, how do we almost teach large corporations to work with startups? from things like POCs, proof of concepts, pilots, experiments, JVs, revenue sharing agreements, where a startup essentially leverages off of a corporate's distribution networks, their clients, their, their customers, their licenses, and a corporate typically cannot fail fast. Oh, a corporate can't afford to fail because of perceptions and market, uh, well, market perceptions, et cetera. So, corporates work with startups in secure sandboxes inside to test if a solution works. If it works, you go to a second phase with initial beta customers. And eventually, you can white-label solutions for a corporate, and then you look at corporate startup par- partnerships that lead to greater success stories. So the idea that we work with is, how do we get multiple corporations to work with the founders of innovative startups to help everyone? And that's Pretty much what's happened all over the world, and it's now through us coming to to South Africa and Africa.
2: So, just wrapping up in the last last one minute, I'd say that you know we've had the great privilege of being able to, you know, each year when we go out for scouting, uh, we do 19 events in 15 countries. 80 uh, percent of that is on the African continent. Uh, this year, in the first three months of our scouting. Uh, we sat face to face with more than 220 startups all across the continent. So it's it's an extraordinary exposure um, to the level of innovation, uh, and and the four uh, that you see here are just a small uh, sample of some of the amazing work that's being done. Um, so the question really was, you know, where is the innovation coming from? And I think it's it's hopefully it's it's demonstrative that that this is you know the African continent is where we're going to find the solutions for the future. Um, so the program that we have is, you know, it's a world-class program. But we're here, living, breathing, eating, sleeping African innovation every day. Um, the full team that we built here—it's—it's it's all African. So, you know, it's—it's it's a Af- uh, by Africans for African solution. Uh, and we're very, very eager to work with more of you guys to to help reach out to that. So, so we'd love to chat with anybody about how we can uh, leverage our programs to to assist you on the digital and innovation disruptive uh, forefront
0: so the cow bells are ringing outside and we're probably thirsty so thanks for joining us. Thanks to everybody here. thank you very much.